Welcome to episode 95 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm going to be talking to Gerard Kreeft, the founder and owner of EnergyWise and the author of The Ten Commandments of the Energy Transition. Now, Gerard contacted me and told me about this book that he had written, and I get these kind of pitches all the time. And usually it's kind of the same old, same old in the clean energy space. You know, we need we need more uh, wind and solar. We need to switch uh, away from fossil fuels quicker, whatever it is. The message is, is not unusual. We've heard it before. That's how I approached this book. But once I got into it, I discovered that the Ten Commandments are very, not like that at all. And very interesting ideas that I don't often see, uh, maybe sometimes never see, uh, made in, you know, by other experts or in the the various uh, literature that I read. So I'm really interested in, in talking to Gerard. Welcome to the interview. Thank you. Appreciate it. Now, before we get into the book, Gerard, I want to talk about your background a little bit, because I suspect that strongly informs the, the book and, and the approach that you took here. You're a Canadian living right. in the Netherlands, and you've worked all over the place, Angola, Brazil, India, Libya, Kazakhstan, Russia, just to name a few of the places where you've worked. You write regularly for the Africa Oil and Gas Report. You contribute to the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. And tell me your story. Give us a couple of minutes of, of how you got started, how you wound up in the Netherlands. Uh, who's Gerard? Well, well, basically, I, I, we, we, I'm from an immigrant stock. We, I immigrated to Canada when I was five from Holland. And, and basically, I did all my academic uh, training at uh, Calvin, Calvin University in Michigan and also at Carleton in, in, uh, in Ottawa. I did my master's in political science, went on to do, do a stint in uh, Parliament Hill on, in terms of the internships when they were still doing that there. And then I was on a KLM flight going to Holland and I made a KLM stewardess who didn't want to come to Canada. So she said, if you want me, well, you have to come to Holland. So being both <laughs> Dutch and Canadian, it was kind of a, an all-tell moment. Okay, I went to Holland, and that was that's been my base of operation ever since. Oh, that that's a years. that's a very old story, Gerard. As 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 old as life itself, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, that's interesting. Okay, so uh, how then did you? Um, uh, how did you wind up in, in uh, these various uh, countries that uh, some of which I, I named off? What were you doing there? Well, basically, first the first number of years I worked for for the for the drillers. So my acquaintance with getting in the oil and gas sector was working with the International Association of Drilling Contractors, which is all the drillers. And so you, I, I ended up organizing a lot of their international conferences, and from there. It was the basis for putting energy-wise together, so that uh, that was kind of a, a takeoff of putting together oil and gas conferences in all of the places you know you named, be that Kazakhstan, Russia, or God knows where. Okay, uh, interesting. Uh, so you have uh, international experience uh, in the, or that's where you got started in the oil and gas industry, and I I, I have some affinity for that because. Uh, I'll tell you. I'll tell you a little story of my own. Um, my background has always been in journalism and communications, 
And in uh, 2003, uh, my wife, Joanne, who's a partner in energy media, we were in, found ourselves in Calgary and we were, uh, had a little company, we were doing video production and we, we got a, a, a contract to work with a company called Endurance Technologies. And they make boronized downhole tubing, which is explanation of which is the coolest thing, but also grist for another, another podcast, uh, not this one. Anyway. Um, a couple months into it, uh, things were kind of slow at that, at that time in the, in the economy and, um, endurance said, Hey, we need a part-time uh, sort of a sales manager, you know, a network developer, uh, Mark. And, and I put up my hand and I said, I'll do that. I didn't know how they got oil out of the ground, Gerard. I honestly, <laughs> I didn't. And I remember, uh, you know, the sessions with, it was like, my dad was a mechanic and he used to explain things to me. You know, he'd, he'd get out his pad and he'd draw a picture of, this is how this thing works, Markham, you know, because, and, and, and the president of, of endurance had to do the kind of the same thing. But anyway, eventually I caught on. I'm not that, you know, I'm not that slow. So eventually I caught on to this. And, um, and then they said in, it was, this started in August and about October. They said, hey, you know, we won't really want to get into the Texas market uh, and particularly the Permian Basin, and we don't know how to do that. And I said, I know how to do that. I went and bought a, I'll just go buy a plane ticket and I'll fly down to Midland, Texas, and I'll meet the one guy you know there. And I did that. And two years later, uh, you know, that was one of their strongest markets. And, it, you know, I, I just would go in and talk to people. This is as simple as yeah, that. I, yeah. you know, I, I don't know anything, but I can talk and I can, but more importantly, I can listen and then right, I can get the right, information right. they need. I can do that. And that worked out really well. So anyway, my point here is that I spent five years in the oil and gas all over North America, you know, California and Wyoming and Canada and, and so on and traveling around and meeting people. That was my introduction to the, to the energy industry, which is not unlike yours. That's right, the point right, of my right. story. We share, we yeah, share yeah. that we share yeah, that experience. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, and, and is that what you've done, you know, all the time that you've been in, in the Netherlands or, uh, well, uh, have you? Well, I had, um, when I put the, the last 10 years, I think I'd had one particular conference that was gas storage, natural gas storage. And that became quickly, uh, hydrogen. And so that, that kind of was the, uh, the new energy ticket and then i always had the other track which was uh, the oil and gas and i ended up doing that conference in angola for 20 years running every year and the last years i ended up going to angola and started talking to them about renewables and you kind of get a, a glazed look you know the angolans are all very polite but they understood they didn't understand what you were basically saying and so um yeah it was it was, and, and the thing that really, really turned my attention was like, what you see in the first commandment is like that, that whole thing about RRR, reserve replacement ratio. It, it, it sounds <laughs> awfully <laughs> academic, but it's, 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 it's the nuts and bolts of like, for an oil company, what, what, what the reserves are for a bank. You have to know what they, what their reserves are. And when I started looking at this and, and that the Canadian tar sands were written off, so in other words, the whole classification system was in, in, in one drop of the hat was flushed on the toilet. And, and the French were so clever. Okay. 
So, okay. I, I don't want to get too far into the weeds on that one okay, uh, okay. because I do want to spend most of this interview talking about your 10 commandments. And since you mentioned the first one, let's deal with that, which is learn the language of the energy world. And for both you exactly. and I, who came from backgrounds that were, uh, you know, not in energy, we weren't engineers, for instance, um, no. you know, we had to learn the language of the energy world. So why is this the first commandment? Well, because I think people, I mean, I, I don't want these commandments to sort of be like, uh, it's it's people reach for solutions right away. They don't have to really, people, I think they have to just count to 10 a few times and understand, really take the time to understand what this is all about. Because the oil and gas sector is a sophisticated world, and you have to understand the techniques that it encompasses. Okay, that's interesting. Now, now I'll, I'll push back on that a little bit because the I run into this all the time, uh, it, where uh, let's say oil and gas engineers are the worst, and I love them. Don't get me wrong. I the five years that I spent in the industry was primarily on the on the front end of an engineer's desk talking to him. That's mostly what I did. So I I learned that's how I learned the language of the of the oil and gas world. Uh, but their attitude is, you know what? If you don't have the same experience that I have, if you don't have the same training that I have, you don't speak the same jargon that I have, you know nothing. Your your experience, your your point of view is irrelevant and I'm not listening to it and we just we, we dismiss you. And that's I I find that I mean not never mind it's condescending and arrogant, but it's it puts up a barrier uh between the oil and gas industry and the the energy transition world, which is all about electricity and hydrogen and low carbon fuels and and you know new technologies that use electricity instead of oil and gas, and and so uh, I and in my journalism I tend I cast a very broad net all over the world, all sorts of uh, energy types, uh, all sorts of different systems and for for using energy. And then I try to connect the dots. That's kind of my journalism model here is, is the big picture and, you know, and, and figure out things, lessons and, and themes and so on. And, and that drives the, the technicians, the, the oil and gas engineers nuts. And so yeah. I don't know that I've got, I've, I've been babbling here for a minute. And I'm not sure that I've actually made a point uh, aside from the fact that I, I'm not fussy about, technical jargon and, and being frozen out of it because I had conversations because I don't know it. But anyway, uh, uh, your response, sir. Well, to me, it's simply, it's you don't have to understand the total dictionary vocabulary of the oil and gas industry, as long as you at least have a latent understanding of what it entails and then take it from there. So then you, okay, can, that's you, can, that's, you can make a transcendental, transcendental hop to, to understanding at least what they're about without taking on their arrogance. Okay, fair enough. And but let me give you an example from the other side. I interviewed a fellow named Mike Andrade, who's a, a CEO in the uh, clean energy space, been for 30 years. And he made a point. He said, you need to learn the language of electronics because uh, what's coming is essentially energy as a technology, energy that is based on electronics not on a commodity. And he said, 
that changes the way you think about the spread of that technology, how fast it, it develops, how quickly it innovates and, and introduces those innovations into markets. He said, all of that is different. And the language sort of sets the framework for how you think about that. And, and so, uh, but he was, he saw that as uh, his approach, his attitude was a little different than the oil and gas engineers. I got to say a little more inclusive, you know? Uh, and so maybe that the examples we're bringing here mean that those of us, if you really do want to understand, you do have to spend a little time learning the language. So learning the ideas, the concepts in the various energy worlds that we're talking about. I, I think that's a fair statement because there's there's something that I came across in New York at the conference there. They were talking about underground gas storage, and then they were talking about the effects of meth, methane. And I thought issues raised that I hadn't even thought of. And and if you're going to be, if you're going to at least have at least a topical knowledge of it, you should be at least aware of that. And you know, I mean, you don't have to be an, an expert. You have to be more an expert horizontally than vertically. I, I'm going to uh, close the discussion on this commandment with with this observation, and that is, uh, there's also the difference between the language of the expert and the language of the storyteller. And this came this came through loud and clear on a panel I sat on in Ottawa about three weeks ago about industrial policy, and there was an economist there. Who, and these were all professional people, you know, like they're, you know, sitting in the audience, maybe 75 of them. And he was kind of looking down his nose at them and he was doing the profess professorial thing, you know, right, and right, explaining right. these, you know, he had all sorts of jargon and he was explaining the, you know, technical. And, and I, and I, and I got kind of went head to head with him on some, on some issues. And I very deliberately used the, the, the language of narrative, the language of storytelling, simple, direct, you know, set out set out a framework, an arc, and then explain. You know, tell stories and explain how this this applies to the people in the audience. And it was so much more successful, in a way, at least from the feedback I got afterwards, than the the economists' uh, uh, approach. Right, right, right. Yeah. So there, there's a there's a, that's another another way to frame the discussion around around yeah, language yeah, yeah. of the energy world. Yeah. 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 So let's get into the, the second commandment. And this one I know we're going to have some spirited discussion about because the commandment is thou shalt not attempt to hasten the speed of the energy transition. And right. that is a loaded question. So tell me, tell me what your thinking is here. Well, basically, I think it's like uh, you have, like, for example, all the Europeans shall be P. They're all outdoing each other and kind of like I can, you know, my apple is greener for the teacher. And we're all going to do our best. So it's kind of the marketplace that's driving greed and, and in that sense, driving the transition forward. So, I mean, we don't have to do anything. It's like Adam Smith's invisible hand will do it for us. Okay, fair fair enough. Um, uh, and I, I think what you're, uh, since you use the example of the European oil majors, uh, one of the points there is that they're getting into business models that they don't have a background in. That they're not familiar with, like you know, they're they're investing in uh, uh, electric vehicle infrastructure charging or, or charging infrastructure, or they're getting into they're almost becoming utilities in a way, you know, they're getting yeah. into they're buying wind and solar generation that that sort of thing, and and they're doing it to hasten their 
they're transitioned from their hydrocarbon business model to a clean energy uh, business model. And a lot of investors are very nervous about that. They're, they're not happy at all. And, and they're seeing their returns fall and, or they were up until prices, oil prices spiked, but nevertheless, there was, there was a lot of, a lot of nervous about, nervousness about that. So that's, that's the investor's point of view on that particular issue. And then there's the policymakers, because of course, climate, the climate crisis overhangs any discussion these days about, about energy. And I, I, uh, here's the way I, I describe it, and I'll get your response to this, uh, Gerard. Um, we've got to the point where much of the technology that is transforming the energy system today has its roots in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. I mean, you know, solar panels in the 70s, wind turbines in the 80s, the lithium-ion battery introduced in 1991. I mean, this has been around for a while, and it's now the market that is driving those technologies because it's, it, it's better, it's cheaper. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, well, it's better technology. And so I often say, you know, don't worry about the technology is how fast do you want it? It's like a bus, yeah, you know, yeah. climate, yeah. you know, the climate issues is around like a bus and, or the energy transition. And, and if you want it to go faster, push, push harder on the climate policy uh, pedal. And that's fine. That'll get you, you know, adopting electric vehicles sooner or renewables sooner or whatever, it, whatever it might be, but the essential, we, essentially the bus is built. Right. The bus is on the road, the bus is, you know, fueled and it's driving. And it's just now a question of, you know, how fast you want to drive. Anyway, right. the, my, my take on the hasten the speed of the energy transition, let's uh, what, what, what say you, sir? Well, I think the, the majors may do the initiation and, it's, but it's all symbolic. The, pers- the, the companies that are really pushing this, and that's what the major oil companies are, are reacting to, are the new energy companies that I also described, like the Orsteds from Denmark. These are the boys that really will, at the end of the day, determine how, how fast the energy transition moves. And then, of course, they have their technology, which is now pretty mature. So they can move that along depending on where they can best make their return on investment. Okay. So, so the, the, the big companies uh, to a large extent are going to determine the speed of the, the energy transition. And I, I have to uh, point to a, a Reuters story that I saw last week, which said, and I can't remember the end date, whether it was 2030 or 2050, but I think it was well before 2050. Uh, but anyway, uh, the transportation sector is going to invest $1.2 trillion in uh, building capacity to, to shift from oil, and, uh, oil over to um, uh, electricity, to basically electrify transportation right. in various sizes. Well, the mar- that's the market speaking. That, right. That's capital saying, you know, that's the auto sector saying, okay, we get it. We're all in on electricity. Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, out, we're out of that. And and now we're going to put our money where our mouth is. I mean, you know, that's you know, money yeah, I, money talks and BS walks, right? So yeah, and I, I I agree there. You know, totally. Okay, uh, we're in agreement on that one. Uh, commandment number three: make right. the necessary contingency plans because of the dramatically changing energy value chain. What do you mean by that? Contingency plans. Well, well yeah, what I mean there is that maybe I didn't explain it to. Her didn't have that. But okay, what I really mean is like, if you have your integrated oil company, you have upstream, midstream, downstream, 
And what I sort of see is that those three segments basically breaking up. And I think you're going to sort of see that um, with new energy companies, they could be taken over. Orsted could be taking over a part of Shell or, or even upstream that, for example, um, even Shell's upstream could be put into a joint venture with Total for the deep water play. I mean, these are the, they, they have to start doing that because it's, they, they just don't have the resources that they once thought they had to, to do all three segments of the energy value chain. Okay, that's really interesting because I was reading just a couple of days ago about how, for example, uh, Renault, I, I think it was, is going to spin off its uh, company into five com uh, separate companies so that they can raise capital to do, you know, various parts of the, of the electri to electrify their, their product. Right. And apparently this is a business model that a lot of other automakers are, are thinking about as well. I guess we saw. Uh, well, yeah, I, I, the example I can do is from my own experience is like with the drillers. You're seeing now that, for example, um, that you have um, that uh, Sipem has taken its, which is a big, big player in Europe, is, is now scuttled off its uh, land rigs and going to 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 KCA Deutag. So that's becoming rationalized more in the drilling sector. So, you know, you're already seeing the the uh, upstream sub, uh, service providers kind of rationalizing themselves. The oil companies don't have to do that yet because with the, with the price of oil, what it is. But that's going to happen. I guarantee it. Three or five years down the road, you're going to see things being hived off, joint ventured, and basically like a Joseph's coat of many colors. And then that makes perfect sense to me because markets are changing, technology is changing, products are changing. There's so much disruption in the energy, the global energy system now that that companies are, I mean, they're kind of feeling their way, you yeah, know, and yeah. some and sometimes their their existing business model isn't can't be adapted to the requirements of the, you know, the the way that in which the technology and the markets have changed. And so therefore they're doing what you're suggesting, which is, you know, they're hiving off parts of the business, entering into joint, we're doing all, all of all of those things. And um that actually leads I'm gonna I'm gonna go find an expert who can talk about that sort of in detail because that okay. that in, that intrigues me. That intrigues me. But let's get on to the next one. The fourth okay. commandment is be understanding of the less developed global economies suffering from energy poverty. And of course, we're recording this while COP27 is going on. And one, right. of the big, and one of the big issues there is those less developed economies saying, hey, guys, you to the developed uh, economies, you created this problem from the Industrial Revolution onward. You're the ones that have been spewing all this CO2. And and here we are, you know, you're expecting us to step up as equals, and uh, that's not fair. And that does that kind of capture your your and, yeah, in many ways because you you can't somewhere in the book I also cite the track record of what the oil majors have left behind in Africa, and it's only a legacy of bracelets and and trinkets, and it's not as though they're sharing wealth, you know. What what the my publisher for African Oil and Gas has said is that, you know, like the balance sheets of the oil majors in Africa is financing new energy in the rest of the world. 
Oh, that that's a really good point. I'd never thought of that. So they're making profits off, you know, places like, I don't know, Angola or Ghana or places like that. They take those profits then uh, and they, they don't invest them back into the enclave economy that they've created. They go invest them in Europe uh, where they're under regulatory pressure or pressure from investors. And so like I was at that New York meeting and they had a session on the East African crude oil pipeline, which is something like a 1400 kilometer pipeline going from Uganda through to the port of Tanzania and all that, it's a, an oil pipeline and it's all oil for the export. It's nothing for the, the for Africa itself. And so, and and everybody, the, the even in Africa, it's becoming, uh, setting up a real stink. And it could be much like the pipeline that was blocked by Joe Biden in, in the States. You know, it could be Africa's version of waking up and sort of saying enough is enough yeah you're referring to keystone excel of course keystone yeah exactly yeah yeah uh well that's really interesting now uh, gerard uh, give me your opinion on the possibility that these less developed uh, economies and you're talking about africa so maybe that's a good one that they will skip over some of the uh, just like they did with telecommunications you know instead of putting in landlines yeah. they all just went to cell phones and mm -hmm. Will they skip over uh, the you know internal combustion engine and 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 uh, you know refineries and all of that, uh, and and simply go with like for if you're in Africa, solar seems to make a whole lot of sense. And if well, you set does, up, yeah, and, and and what you're seeing is like I can point to you a couple of major projects that they're actually exporting hydrogen like they're setting up wind parks and solar in Africa because in Europe, they don't have the room. And then that's all going to be exported after after electrolysis. And that's going to be used for hydrogen development in Europe. So, I mean, I think Africa is certainly can more, can certainly benefit more from that than oil and gas. And if you take then the example in Angola too, like, okay, Angola used to produce 2 million barrels a day. Now it's one, but what, what that camouflages is is the, uh, the 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 real power that that renewables are doing in Angola, and in many ways, the the narrative of the oil majors is you know don't they keep talking about what they're doing, but the, the narrative for renewables is quite fascinating in Africa. Well, tell us a little bit more about that. What is the narrative uh, for renewables in Africa? Well, for example, Angola, which country, which is which I know like my my pocket, it's like you know they've got they've just put together um, a, a major, major, uh, like next year, I think 60, 70% of rural Angola will have, will have electricity. And this is not something that you hear from the majors. I mean, like what you hear from the majors is that, oh, they, they spent 10 kilo, kilowatt for doing some demonstration project and which is symbolic of nothing. I mean, it, it, it just, it's just, it's just basically throwing money down the drain. And, and you, you see the same in Namibia that they're, that the Namibians are welcoming both oil and gas, but also a particular attention to a lot of these, uh, this, this developing hydrogen for the European market. Though I don't know if to the extent that that will, another, another version of exporting hydrogen, how it's going to help Africa, but at least that's that's a new direction, and and I don't think that the future of Africa is in the oil and gas sector. 
Right. Yeah. Fair enough. I mean, the, the future of the oil and gas sector is is cloudy at best. So, but the this idea, uh, you know, Russia's invasion of the Ukraine has got us thinking again about energy security, and the point that I think you know Europe made with the uh, re uh, re repower EU strategy is that okay if you're going to hold us hostage with oil and gas well then we're going to electrify uh those functions and we'll become independent uh energy wise because we'll generate all of our own electricity and our sustainable aviation fuel or and maybe we'll in, import apparently some hydrogen from Canada and, and Africa but basically we can reduce our dependence and our vulnerability to regimes like like Putin and Russia by simply creating our energy at home. Well, if you can do that cost effectively as you can now, particularly with solar, doesn't that say for Africa that, my goodness, this is your time. You have the resource, you have incredible sun and and clean electricity, uh, clean, abundant, low cost electricity is literally the foundation of the 21st century economy. And and can the Africans seize that? Is that can they well, seize the day? Well, the, the thing is, there's a little thing that I could tell you that about Toyin, my publisher for African Oil and Gas. He said, you know, who the worst enemy is? It's not it's not the Europeans or the or the Americans or whatever. It's it's the Africans themselves because they just don't have the vision to put this together. So he's very harsh on his fellow countrymen and and fellow Africans. He said, you know, where where is where is the imagination? Where is the vision? It's just not there. It doesn't go much beyond the village council. Well, isn't that interesting? Okay, again, a grist for another conversation. Uh, let's go on to commandment number five. Appreciate and respect the technical complexity and specialization of the energy sector. And I have to tell you, Gerard, the, the five years that I spent talking to uh, oil and gas engineers made me acutely aware of this commandment because uh, I don't think that, um, I don't think the average Canadian, for example, uh, understands how technically complex en energy uh, energy is. And, you know, when I get into discussions on social media and, you know, somebody who's an ardent environmentalist will say, well, let's just throw up a bunch of wind and solar and get rid of oil and yep. gas. Yeah. Oh, if it was only that simple. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, the technical complexities of doing that uh, or, you know, remember Greta Thunberg all the time, you know, blah, yeah, blah, yeah. blah. You're not doing anything. And but for those of us who, you know, like my case, report on the energy sector and understand how profoundly it's changing, how rapidly it's changing. It may not look like it to Greta, to Greta, but goodness gracious, if you're paying attention to this, the changes are just astonishing. Uh, but technical complexity and specialization make it a little, you know, make it slower than maybe it otherwise would be. Yeah, in, in many ways, I would sort of see this as 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 uh, being connected with the first commandment, understanding the vocabulary of the energy sector. So this is more this is more a bit of the emphasis on on that so that you can understand the complexity and that it's just not one, two, three and it's solved, you know. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good point. Um we're going to have to hustle along here. Uh, okay. This is fascinating, and we, but I, I suspect that we can do an all-day podcast uh, the way we're going. 
Well, let's uh, commandment number six, learn to live with less. Now, my goodness, uh, you know, if you're talking to a North American, uh, that is a sometimes difficult thing to do. Tell us what you mean by it. Well, I mean, it's self-evident, I guess, but what's your thought? At heart, I'm a bit of an old Calvinist. And so, you know, it's be a bit austere in terms of, okay, learn, maybe turn the, the thermostat down to 16 degrees warm the house up in the morning 19 and turn it down for the rest of the day and 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 uh, just literally doing that sort of thing and and on a on a micro, macro level you may not you know the economy all the economists tell you yeah we need a three four percent growth every year well maybe we need a negative growth you know just to be a, a cynic and 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 in new york some people are saying yeah you sound like an old testament prophet well damn it maybe we have to be like that if you're going to <laughs> Well, look, I mean, this is one of the things that, that has been uh, exposed uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic, particularly in, in North America, is how incredibly narcissistic and selfish people have become. Yeah. You know, they won't. I, I don't know how many times I've seen people, particularly, I have to say, younger people say, look, I don't care if you're over 60 and you die of COVID. You, I'm not wearing a mask to protect you. I just don't care. Look after yourself, stay at home, don't ever go out of the house if that's a problem for you, but I am not changing my lifestyle uh, to accommodate the fact that I might kill you if I infect you with COVID-19, which is just so callous, it's it's astonishing, but that kind of callousness almost goes unremarked these days, and it gets wow. back to, if you're asking people to live with less, I mean, goodness gracious, if they can't protect their fellow human being uh, from a deadly disease, asking them to live with you know one less car or uh, turning down the, the heat or a couple of degrees or the AC to a couple, almost seems impossible in today's culture. Well, but okay. I mean, but that is really coming from my heart and it's really kind of, yeah, I do really do mean it. I, I don't doubt that for a moment. And my, here, my, the point I, I wanted to get to uh, is that maybe what we need is old prophets. Uh, old, no, that's not in Kamara, right? Old Testament style prophets is what I meant. Yeah. Uh, who can who then preach that message and and eventually change culture? Yeah, I mean, like I don't want to be thumping the Bible or anything like that. But I mean, like if we were we were. In, I go to a fairly progressive church, and they were, and they were. It's it's kind of bemoaning all the time. Why is the, the church so irrelevant? Well, the, the reason the church is irrelevant is because they really don't have a message to tell. And you know, they they talk about moralisms like uh, abortion or euth- euthanasia or God knows what. But the real the real um, public issues like energy transition is left in a total vacuum. It's no wonder that that Trump kind of kidnaps the whole Protestant evangelical church. Okay. Well, on, on that note, that's a rabbit hole. We are not going to go to go down because no, no, uh, we'll never I get just, out of it, but I couldn't, uh, I couldn't let go by. Right. Uh, fair enough. Uh, but uh, I'm going to skip over commandment number seven, guarantee financing of the energy transition. Cause that's just a, we'll never get out of that one. But this one, commandment number eight, beware of false prophets, is related to number six. So what do you mean by that? Beware of false prophets. I mean, like, the, the, I, basically, I'm focusing on the oil majors who, who, who 
who promise you the promised land and then in Africa they have delivered zilch. So basically it's like, um, you know, let, let Africa kind of go its way and don't, don't let the, the sand that the oil majors throw in your face distract you. Okay, that that I get it. The greenwashing, uh, narrative management, uh, I, you or know, gaslighting or whatever. Yeah, I, I, I I'm a, a harsh critic of the Canadian oil and gas uh, industry's manipulation of the Canadian energy discourse in order to advance their own their own goals. So I get it. Okay, uh, we need to wrap this up. So I'm going to combine co commandments nine and ten which are provide your children and grandchildren with a bold vision and clear objectives for the energy future. That's nine. Number 10 is be resilient, resolved, and tough. That's, that's uh, 10. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, basically um, I think you need, if you're going to, if you're going to live with less, then you also have to be provide some kind of a vision for your children and grandchildren, how you want to do that. And, and I think I've provided some examples, but um, for example, what, what do you think the world will look like in 2030, 2040? And um, when I'm talking about being resilient and tough, it's like I took as an example, Zelensky, the, the, the president of the Ukraine. And, you know, he was an example, sort of like the, the little fella taking it up against Goliath and by God, he won. Yeah, that's really something. Okay, well, we should all be Zelensky's. I, I would agree with that. There's a, who doesn't who doesn't like the little guy that stands up to the schoolyard bully? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, look, um, Gerard, thank you very much. This is wonderful. I'm going to uh, the Ten Commandments of the Energy Transition and other essays on how to power our society without imploding the economy or destroying the planet by Gerard Kreeft, K R E E F T. I would hardly uh encourage uh listeners to to get this it's very it's an easy read it's not a, a long book and uh but it's very thoughtful and thought-provoking and gerard thank you very much for doing this this has been delightful okay it's 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 done even by your local press frisian frisian press out of victoria Oh, well, there you go. Uh, I'll just I'll wave out the window at, at the freezing folks. Uh, I'm that, that close. But anyway, uh, all the best. Uh, and thank you again. Well, thank you for the interview.